0: And I met Aslan probably when I was in like third or fourth grade in Suntown. So kids church. Um, So that's how I met Aslan.
1: And this is Alexa. I want to say you were in fourth grade when I met you, when I came back to Crossroads and started working in the kids ministry. I
0: was born in 1995. So I'm kind of right there on the border, but I identify with like
1: generation Z. And I am also right on the border between millennial and Gen X, but definitely identify with Gen X.
0: What's a moment we've shared together that you'll always remember?
1: (laughs) Okay, I've told you this. This is not spiritually significant at all. (laughs) It was the time when I was leading King's Kids and you were in King's Kids Uh and we were singing for a weekend service. And you were backstage with your mom lying on a pew on your belly, and she was French braiding your hair so tight that you were crying. <laughs> I believe that 100%. But you had a really cute outfit on. Of
0: course I did. It was the Rudolph reindeer Christmas oh, yes. outfit. Yes, yes. <laughs> yep. Um, tell me about a moment between us that passed that you wish you had taken advantage of. Hmm.
1: I guess I feel like oftentimes when kids left elementary ministry, just because that's where like I worked mm-hmm. most closely, that I lost touch with them. And I mean, you would be a great example of that. Not that like we lost touch all together, mm-hmm. but I think I, in hindsight, like wish that maybe I'd been more intentional, like through middle school, high school, even college years, even just like an occasional check-in, like, mm-hmm. hey, how are you doing? What's going on? Yeah. Um, how can I be praying for you? That yeah. kind of thing. Tell me about a moment in your life that changed your spiritual trajectory. Probably there's
0: two. Um, I was baptized in fourth grade, so I think that probably has
1: something to do with, like,
0: where I am today. Um, And you were definitely heavily involved in that. Um, Like, I have a memory of you being on the stage and just thinking, like, I would be like Miss Aslan someday. Mm -hmm. But then I do think that there was another shift in college Um, where I kind of got to a moment where it was like, all right, I either got to choose this for real or like,
1: I'm going to walk away completely. And thank God it wasn't the second one. Do you know what? Like I would say I had a similar experience in college and I was at a Bible college and like was pretty sure like what I knew, what I knew what I was doing with my life. I just think that's part of life too, is like at some point there's a critical moment where you decide like, is my faith going to be mine Mm -hmm. or is Mm -hmm. it not?
2: Well, good morning, everybody. How are we today? Good, bad? Okay, good. That's helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, Garrett. Good to see you. Uh, Good spring break for families. Yes, no? Katie, you refreshed, ready for the rest of school year? Okay. Very good. Very good. Um, Well, I'm excited to be here as we jump into uh, week four of this series, Gen We, Generation We. And uh, we kind of started out this series in week one by looking at the fact that uh, about 50% of young people who grow up in the church and graduate high school attending church walk away from the faith community after graduating. And we said two things about that. Number one, we're not okay with that. And number two, if we're going to do something about that, it's gonna require us to come together to say that this is a we and us problem. This isn't a they, them problem. We can't point the finger to a certain generation or, or it's parents these days or it's kids these days. No, we've got to come together and say, we are going to be part of the solution as this generation of the people of God. In week two, we looked at the importance of modeling the faith we want to see passed on to the next generation with things like um, uh, modeling Bible engagement, but modeling actually pursuing Jesus and and being sincere whenever we, we don't do that well to repent to those that are watching around us. We looked at the importance of modeling what it looks like to actually help others grow in their faith, what it looks like to model serving. And then last week, we looked at the importance of being intentional with our time to both build faith in our lives, but then also to pass on faith to the next generation as well. We said we must prioritize what's most important. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the power of moments. We're going to talk about how moments have the power to change people and to change people's lives. It's kind of crazy to think about how one chance encounter or one decision or, or one little thing can, can lead to a moment that changes either a life or a relationship. And oftentimes these things seem like they come out of nowhere. I mean, think about your own life. There's probably been some moments that have been significant. Maybe for you, it was a national or an international event that happened that shaped things for you, shaped a way that you viewed the world. There was a survey done in 2016 that looked at uh, generations from the silent generation up through millennials and asked questions about uh, what significant events kind of shaped their generation. And if you look at the silent generation, they identified uh, World War II and uh, the JFK assassination. For uh, the baby boomers, they identified JFK's assassination and also uh, Vietnam up near the top of that as well. Uh, for gen xers they um, looked and they saw the election of president obama as significant as well as the fall of the berlin wall for uh, millennials up near the top of that list um, was the uh, iraq and afghanistan wars were significant there and then also the election of president obama but one of the things that struck me is that across all of these generations, there was one shared event that was number one and that was 9-11. So in 2016, whenever you look across all of these generations that have so many unique things that happened, there was one thing that all of those generations had in common as a significant piece. And I think if you were to do this survey again here in a couple of years, you would probably see something like COVID-19 being near the top of that list or Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And so today, what we're asking is, how is it that we can be intentional to leverage these moments for gospel-centered conversations? These are shared moments that we have. These are things that happen in our world that that change things. And a distinguishing marker of the people of God is that we seek to engage these things. We look at what's happening in the Ukraine. We look at what's happening in our world outside of that. And we look at these things and we try to say, what does the truth of who God is and what God's done and what he is doing now, how does that speak into this situation? How do we make sure we are looking at this through the lens that that God would have maybe on this rather than a a certain political leaning or a certain news channel that you watch or any other paradigm? How do we see these things through the lens of who God is and what he's doing and allow that to shape how we speak into these situations? But I think we all also have moments in our lives that were maybe a whole lot more personal that have shaped us as well. Maybe it was the first uh, breakup with your first love or the death of someone that was really close to you. Maybe for you, it was uh, the rejection or a betrayal of a close close friend or, or a crisis moment where you really had to trust God. Maybe it was the first grown-up decision that you had to make. Maybe it was becoming an empty nester, or it was one of those fork-in-the-road moments in your marriage, a fork-in-the-road moment with your job or your career, a relocation, an illness, or, or an accident. Right now, research is showing us that these moments that happen in individuals' lives are incredibly powerful for indicating what's happening in their faith journey as well. In fact, we're seeing that that across all generations, whenever moments like these happen, more and more people are walking away from the church or walking away from seeing a community of faith as being vital in their lives. Let me just think about your own life. Maybe who in your life do you know that maybe you walked through some key moments with, but then something happened that was unexpected whenever that moment struck, it changed things for that person. Maybe it's someone that you used to sit next to that now no longer sees being a part of a faith community as being really that, all that important at all for their life or for their journey. One thing that, that these moments should do is actually draw us together, allow us to see that we need one another as we walk through these. Maybe, maybe that's even your story, that there was a moment like that that happened that, that led to you maybe walking a different direction for a season. But there are also more maybe like mundane, everyday moments that can shape Lives as well. It can be as simple as a breakfast moment where you're sitting there and a child says, oh man, I I forgot to do my homework. And the way that, that you choose to respond there may impact that kid more than you realize. It could be meeting a new person on the street and choosing to treat them with dignity. It could be a moment at work where you make the decision to do something that's honest when when maybe cutting a corner would be advantageous for you. It would actually be better for you in your career. Or maybe it could be the other direction. It's a moment at work where you choose to compromise when, when you know you shouldn't. These moments have the power to shape us. It could be a moment of confessing sin or having sin confessed to you. These moments are opportunities to shape and form lives and to transform relationships as well. And you can prepare for some of these, but oftentimes the primary preparation we can do to get ready for these things is actually becoming the kind of people who have some instincts that allow us to respond in a way that doesn't alienate relationships. Some people would call this becoming people of character. So this is how I'd like for us to think about people of character. People of character are those who have developed the instincts to respond in moments, even spontaneous moments, in a way that reflects a transformed heart. It's about changing what our instincts are in those moments. And again, the question before us is how do we leverage these moments for the purpose of gospel-centered conversations, of conversations that point to who God is and what God is doing in this world? And throughout this series, we've been in Deuteronomy chapter 6, looking at this key moment in the history of Israel. The people of God have been delivered out of slavery, but even after they were delivered out of slavery, they chose not to trust God, which led to them actually wandering around in the desert for 40 years because of their uh, disobedience to God. Now, God is preparing them for this land in this moment, 40 years later, that he had promised to their ancestors. And God uses this moment to speak through Moses. God is inviting the people in this moment to a deeper relationship. He's inviting them to experience a relationship with him like he had created them to experience as people and as a nation together. And this is where Deuteronomy 6 comes in. Deuteronomy 6.4 starts with the words, Shema Yisrael, hear O Israel. We've heard those words a lot throughout the series, but then he goes on to use the personal name of God. He says, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. Now, why is it that it's important that God says this to Israel in this moment? We see that Israelites have been on this journey over the last 40 years where they've been wandering around together in the wilderness. They've been wandering together, and this is sort of like um, summer camp in some ways. By that, I mean that like it's this moment where you're in a place with a bunch of people that at least have a shared story of like, hey, this is what we're trying to do. You still have some people that are maybe off doing their own thing or whatever, but it's sort of like summer camp in that you're all together on the same journey, but it's a lot not like summer camp in that like rather than being really fun, it was really miserable for them the whole time, and there was even less food variety, so it's kind of like summer camp, but kind. Of not, but it's important that he says Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone, because they've been wandering around with a group of people that have it as part of their story that Yahweh is the one and only God, but they're getting ready to go into a land and they're going to spread out in this land. They're no longer going to be wandering together. And in this land, as they spread out, they are going to be going into these places where there are people who don't believe that Yahweh alone is God. So as they get ready to go out here, God is speaking to his people in this moment to prepare them to reflect on who God is, his character, and what the character of God's people should look like. Now, we should be familiar with this passage by now, but we're going to go ahead and start in Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. Moses says this to the people, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as a symbol on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them down on or write them on your door on the doorframes of your houses and on your gates. And he goes on to say this in verse ten. It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large and flourishing cities that you did not build, houses with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Moses highlights here what God has done and is doing for his people. They're about to go into this land that that God had promised them, but it's a land that they have not earned. So who is God and, and what is God doing in this moment? God is stressing his graciousness towards people. That's part of his character. God isn't giving them this land because they deserve it, but he's giving it to them because he's gracious and he's faithful to this promise he made generations before. And Moses goes on to tell the people this. He says, be careful and do not forget the Lord. And this is a word for each of us as well. Do not forget. If we're going to be a people who pass on faith from one generation to the next, we must not forget the story of what God's done. God has brought our church through seasons that have been incredibly challenging. God has brought us through seasons that tested where we were going to place our faith and our trust, and yet God has shown him faithful in each of these. God has drawn us as a church body to choose to trust in Jesus, to trust in his word, to trust that God is going to continue to be faithful. If we're gonna be a people that pass this on to the next generation, we must remember God and his provision. If we don't, we're going to be a people like the Israelites who choose to just wander about. This is true for us as individuals. Whenever we forget who God is and what God has done, we wander. It's true for us as a congregation. If we forget who God is and what he's done, we are going to wander. If we're going to, remember, this is vital for us. Again, if we are going to pass this on to the next generation, we must tell the stories of God's provision. Moses then uses this moment to develop character in his people or to point them towards the character they are to develop. If you look in verses 13 through 19, Moses instructs them to fear the Lord. He instructs them to live like the people of God. Do what is good and right in the Lord's sight. God created a moral structure for his people then and for us to live within. And when we live in this, we experience the goodness of God's design. The people of Israel were to live within this design and so are you and I. This is Moses using this moment to point to God's character and how to develop godly character. Doing what is right, reflecting God's character is what we're called to here. Living within God's design. And and here is the deal. Whenever we live according to God's design, it leads to people around us asking questions. That's exactly where the passage goes if you go then to verse 20. It says, in the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord, our God, has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh and Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in And give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before us or before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. So what decisions do you make and why do you make them? What is the reason for the choices you make in your life? Whenever your life is lived in such a way that people ask these questions, we provide a moment to point to who God is and what he's done. That's what God is instructing these people to do in this moment. This was God's design for his people all along. This God's design for you and I now. Whenever we do this, we have the power to capture and leverage these opportunities in the course of everyday life for the purpose of conversations that point to who God is and what he's doing. So what does this look like? Well, again, I think this comes by us seeking to be the kind of people who can have these type of conversations. Maybe maybe even before we get there, I think a question to ask is, do you know God's story and how God's story has maybe intervened with your story well enough to to share that with someone when they ask a question? If not, I, I don't want you to feel ashamed about that. Rather, I want to encourage you to take some moments this week to press in with the Lord and reflect on that. Take some time. There's no perfect answer here, but take some time to reflect on your own life and think about the ways that God has intervened in your life. Maybe he was rescuing you from from a sin you couldn't get out of on your own. Maybe it was a season where God provided in a way you couldn't believe. Maybe it's a moment in your life where God came alongside you in a season of suffering that, that could have led you to go anyway, but because God was there, he carried you and sustained you through. Reflect on the ways that God has been at work in your life. And rehearse those stories in your mind so you're ready to repeat those stories to the next generation. Reflect on how God's story has transformed your own story. But in addition to that, I think that we can also do some work to become the kind of people who, again, are ready to respond in these moments, to leverage these moments. William P. Smith wrote a book called Parenting with Words of Grace that focuses on conversations and and words and how those really can transform in parenting. But he makes a statement in there that goes well beyond parenting. I think it applies to any conversation you have any day in any relationship. And here's what he says. He says, the things we choose to say or not to say along with the way we say them, are either an invitation to or a warning against greater relationship. I want to take a couple of minutes just to think about how maybe this would apply to us as we think about approaching different moments that come about in our life. How is it that we can choose to um, use these moments planned or not to lead to greater relationship with others? I think it starts with us choosing a posture that prepares us for this. I remember whenever I was in high school, there was a moment where a key mentor in my life had a significant moral failure in his life that that was devastating for me and a group of students. But in that moment, what happened for us is there were a couple of leaders named Todd and Kristen who opened their home and they welcomed us in. And it's one of those weird moments where I can remember back to that moment. And I remember being gathered in this room and I said some incredibly dumb things in that moment. But what was really powerful was that in that moment, Todd and Kristen weren't there to just correct me. They weren't there to jump on me for not thinking about things rightly. I was a kid walking through a significant moment in my life. Instead, what they did is they listened. What they did was let us know that they were going to continue to be there. They took a posture of grace towards me in a season where I was really angry and confused. And Deuteronomy seems to infer that that this sort of posture would be experienced by children. Children would understand that they could ask questions of their parents or an older generation about things as they come up. But in our current culture, this is becoming more and more rare because Google seems a whole lot safer than a person, right? It seems like you can just go and ask Google anything, and that's what young people are doing increasingly in our world. Rather than coming and talking to you, they're just running to Google because Google's not going to judge them. It's not going, they don't have to fear rejection in that moment. But if we're going to be a people that capture these moments, we must have a posture where people can come to us without fear of rejection, without fear of judgment. Similarly, I think that there are conversations that, that we can begin to prepare ourselves to engage with. Now, There's a really scary uh, number out there that I'm just going to throw out there. Right now, the average age for porn exposure for a boy is nine years old. And that stat is about four or five years old. So I'm guessing that's becoming increasingly younger in our world, especially with the way that devices are everywhere why do I mention that here? Because we have got to be a people that are prepared to have that conversation. That when, if and when this were to happen with a child in your life, that they could see you as a safe person to come and talk to in that moment without fearing judgment and rejection because of this moment that has happened in their life. You've got to be a a people that are ready for this, that see these conversations as an opportunity to give an invitation to deeper relationship rather than a warning against deeper relationship. And why that word warning? Because I think you've probably been there before. You've had a conversation with someone that you bring something to them, you're really vulnerable with them and yet they respond in such a way that sets off this red flag in your mind where you know "I, I can't go back and talk to them about something again. We don't want to be a people that are like that for our peers or for the next generation. We want to be a people who approach these things with a posture of grace and a posture of humility. We've got to prepare ourselves for those conversations. We've got to prepare ourselves for conversations with our kids around God's design for their bodies and for sex. Those conversations are happening earlier and earlier in our schools, on sports teams, in any number of other environments. We must begin to posture ourselves in a way where kids understand they can come and speak to us. They can come and speak with us in these moments. We must be ready for these conversations around things like cheating or plagiarism or any number of other things that they are tempted to or that they confess to. We must be ready to respond in a way that has a posture of inviting them deeper in rather than warning them to run away. We must be ready to talk about the hard things in life. We must be ready to engage with people again, letting them know that they can come and talk with us. Oftentimes people, and I think young people in particular, are are not so much turned away from the church by the church's belief on any number of things. Oftentimes it has to do with the posture people take as they engage with things going on in our world. Sometimes they're not surprised by what the church believes, but what they're surprised by is the fact that the church responds in such a way that doesn't reflect Jesus. So let's be a people who reflect Jesus. If you're a young person in this room, I'm not too far ahead of you. I want to let you know that one thing that is an onus on us in this is to actually have a posture of humility. Specifically with parents or or others in the church, trust that they actually have your best in mind, that they actually are trying to help you along in this road and they may not handle these conversations perfectly, but they're trying to have these conversations because they love you. So let's have a posture of mutual humility and mutual grace as we seek to engage with these moments in our lives that have the power to change things. Second thing I think we can do in addition to looking at posture is to have a priority of relationship, placing priority on the relationship. As we think about moments and our responses to them, ask the question, what is our goal in this interaction with a young person or with anyone else that you are engaging with? The purpose outlined there in Deuteronomy is that every generation would know and experience God's faithfulness. The invitation there was that every generation would experience the goodness of God's covenantal relationship with his people. This was a legal and binding relationship that God committed himself to with the nation of Israel, and each generation was called to pass this to the next. This is exactly what we see in Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 9 that we've looked at throughout this series, this Talk about these commands, about this structure that God has put around your relationship with him in all of life. The relationship was vital. The people were to personally pass this on to the generations that follow, and the people were to take a communal ownership of this. God was giving them a way to make sure that even when they failed, even when they failed to remember, they could go back to this story that had happened before. Again, anytime we fail to remember who God is and what he's done, we begin to wander. It was true for the nation of Israel, and it's true for you and I. We will wander if we put our focus anywhere other than who God is and what he's done. The third thing I think we can do is is have perspective. If we're going to see this happen and see these moments taken advantage of, we have to have perspective and take the long view. Now this relates to both of these previous points, but I think it expands on it as well. I remember growing up at some point, my mom let me in on the fact that she had been praying since I was a young child that that the Lord would get a grip on my heart because she saw two trajectories for me, either ministry or prison, okay? And somehow I'm here today, so I don't know if that makes you feel better or worse about me being here. But anyways, that was my mom's perspective. But what I love there is that my mom took the long view. She was looking way down the road, not at that frustrating moment with a kid that wouldn't shut up and didn't know what an inside voice was, okay? My mom was not looking at all of the, the, or she was looking at all the challenges, but she didn't see that as things that had to define the rest of my life. The amazing thing that I think we see with God's interactions with the people of Israel is that they continued to wander and yet God continued to see the long view with his people. In fact, God sees this moment with his people in Deuteronomy 6 and he sees the long view that points all the way to Jesus coming some 13,000 years after this. Jesus took the long view and kept saying to his people, return to me. I will receive you back if you will turn to me. Take the long view like God took the long view with his people. Let's take the long view with with young people. Every moment does not require a lecture. In fact, there are many moments that, that capitalizing on them will look like us just asking intentional questions. Recognizing that shaping and forming while there are key moments takes time. We've got to take the long view with this. Take the posture of Jesus of always being willing to receive and embrace. Always be a safe one that they can engage in conversation. Place priority on relationships, not getting your child to some level of perfection in your preferred timeline. Take the long view and keep perspective there. When you do, You will see that these moments come that can be transformational both for you and for people to see an invitation to Jesus. It isn't always perfect. In fact, it's usually really messy. If you have young people in your life that you are pouring into, I want to go ahead and maybe tell you something that I hope will help you down the road. One of the most important things you may do in your life with a young person is simply not freak out whenever they say something that surprises you. Whenever they say something that they're ashamed of, whenever they say something about a struggle that they have or a question that they have that's just an honest question. If you can control your face in that moment, it may go a really long way in allowing them to see you as a safe person that they can come back to. Oftentimes, passing on faith to people isn't a very efficient process. We like to make sure we make the most of everything going on, but sometimes it requires us to be quiet and simply listen. Sometimes it requires us to take the time to continue to press in, to seek to understand in greater ways. And if you don't have maybe the words right now for a conversation that you're having, or you have some questions about whether or not you have the right words, I'm going to give you three magic words from Kara Powell. It's simply this, tell me more. Kara Powell leads the uh, Fuller Youth Institute, which leads the the growing young cohort that we're walking through. One of the things that she talks a lot about is how young people, whenever they're asking questions, a lot of times they're just seeing if someone will listen to them. But a lot of times what adults take that opportunity to do is give them a big, long lecture that may answer a question they're not even asking. So one of the powerful things we can do to make sure we're even just understanding is whenever these things come up, rather than trying to come up with the perfect answer in the moment, simply say, tell me more. Open the door for more conversation. You gain a ton by just continuing that conversation. And if and when you take advantage of these moments, I think you'll see that that they end up becoming really meaningful for young people. They become memorable because they begin to see that there are people in their life who love Jesus and who love them who are willing to receive them and receive their questions. So anticipate these things, prepare for them, see them coming, but be patient with them as well. You know, as I was reflecting on this this last Friday or whatever, just thinking through this um, passage and thinking about this this idea of taking advantage of moments, a story came to my mind from the life of Jesus from John chapter 8. And it's this moment where there's this woman who's caught in the act of adultery, which is a really big deal, right? And he, this woman is taken by a, a crowd of men, by some religious leaders, and he's, she's thrown on the feet before, at Jesus's feet, and these people ask Jesus, "Well the law says this woman should be stoned. What do you say?" And in this pressure-packed moment, Jesus simply kneels down. He begins to write in the dust. Jesus goes on to say, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And in that moment, some stones start to fall. People start to walk away. And Jesus, still kneeling by this woman, taking a surprising posture, says to her, where are your accusers? And says, I don't know. And in this moment, whenever she says that, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And in this moment, I think that there were probably some disciples, probably maybe some lingering crowd members that hear some of this exchange. And I'll tell you this, there wasn't a single person that heard Jesus said this, say this that was surprised when Jesus said, go and sin no more. Jesus was a religious leader, okay? He was a Bible teacher. They're not sinned by Jesus or not surprised by Jesus saying, "Go and sin no more." What would have been shocking both for this woman and anyone listening to this interaction is that Jesus said, "Neither do I condemn you." Neither do I condemn you. You got me thinking how can we be a people who in our interaction with people, we take a posture where we, sure, we hold on to that truth piece that, piece that is vital, but we hold on to that grace piece and we surprise the world with a posture that is safe to be responded to, that's safe to approach with our mess, that's safe to approach with things that are empty or things that, that seem like, like they're just worthless. And the thing I want us to see is that Jesus' posture with this woman is Jesus' posture with you and I as well. So if you're in this room right now and you're thinking back to moments in your life that seemed significant that you think you blew, I want you to know that Jesus isn't looking at you saying, how dare you blow that moment? Instead, he's looking at you saying, hey, neither do I condemn you. I'm here for you as well. And if you're here today and maybe someone blew a moment with you, that has led to you running all kinds of directions in your life, I want you to know that Jesus is here looking at you saying, neither do I condemn you. He's inviting us into deeper relationship. So regardless of where we are, let's be a people who reflect that kind of posture with the watching world around us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for being a God who loves us and cares for us. A God who's taken the long view with these fickle human beings in this room and throughout history. God, right now, we ask that you would shape us and form us to be a people who reflect you in all of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.